Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great honor to welcome Nathan Waters, founder of Peerism, Sid Ethereum, futurist and blockchain and cryptocurrency expert. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you early morning over in Australia, I know. So thanks for joining us. To give our, our audience a bit of context, you write some great content. You're an expert in both Ethereum and cryptocurrencies and blockchain. I read a brilliant blog you wrote about blockchain, and I thought what you did brilliantly was you balanced both the utopian way this could go with kind of decentralization for, for the better of the world, better of humanity, better of, of currency, but also then you painted the counter-argument, which was the dystopian view. Because we had Don Tapscott on the show previously, and Don gave a view of blockchain and what it can do for the world, etc. I'd love to get your view, firstly, of what this does from a decentralization perspective, Nathan. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the blog post in question is called uh, Blockchain Commons, the End of All Corporate Business Models. Pretty cool. So it's been doing the rounds. Kind of anytime you think deeply about any type of technology and where it can go, there's always obviously positives and negatives. And it's really just a matter of which one you, you put forward further. So the blockchain space, decentralization space, like it's it's really fascinating. I've been involved in it since I was mining Bitcoins back when they were like 50 cents each way back in the day. Nice, man. I hope <laughs> you still have them. No. <laughs> lost, lost most of them. I, I bought some stuff. I, I lost uh, got, lost some on a hard, uh, broken hard drive. Uh, so all the usual stories. Um, but anyway, so I went from that to Ethereum. Um, so roughly about a year before the Ethereum crowd sale, we, uh, me and a mate found out about it and we started up uh, Sid Ethereum, which is now like one of the largest, I think it's like the seventh largest Ethereum meetup in the world. Definitely the largest in Australia. Um, and yeah, I've just been fascinated by the whole space and really, uh, really from, a, I guess, a different angle to what potentially a lot of most, a lot of other people, um, come at it from. Um, so when we first heard about that, so the main thing Ethereum really pushed was the idea that, you know, it's a Turing complete computer. So you can basically build whatever you want on there. And also that you could basically create your own cryptocurrency in like, you know, 10, 20 lines of code. And that was fascinating, um, mostly for, the idea of using cryptocurrency as a way to um, almost like solve the chicken and egg problem in building any type of online community. So me and my mate, we've always always been into this idea of like creating hive minds and creating uh, really vibrant online communities that are you know uh, are greater than the sum of their parts. You know, collective intelligence, swarm intelligence, uh, stigmagy, all these kind of fascinating concepts. And the brilliant thing with cryptocurrency is. Uh, I think now they call it like crypto economics It's the idea that you can incentivize people to do the things you want them to do to get that flywheel spinning. Um, and so that's really the fascinating part that I, I kind of came in from it from. Um, and that's, that's really just evolved ever since, uh, I guess from that basis. So now I'm really interested in the idea of um, using crypto economics to almost like leverage the the greedy aspects of humans right now, the the greedy culture we have of, you know, chasing profits and competition and, you know, capturing all the all the value. Um, and using leveraging that to to lead us towards a more collective, um, cooperative system. And so that's what a lot of my projects and a lot of my thinkings and a lot of my thoughts are all about. Yeah, and that really stands out, man. And that's one of the reasons I reached out. I saw that and you can feel the authenticity of your writing even. But uh It'd be great for our audience if you would just give it your view or your description of what Ethereum is, because a lot of people 
get a lot of different descriptions and definitions of what that is. But from from your view, what what would you say it is? So I, I like their original definition that they used to push way back in the day, um, and they've kind of like moved away from that. So they used to call it the world computer. So they're like Ethereum is building the world computer. So imagine if you turn the entire internet into a single global common computer that anyone can access, that nobody owns. It's a, it's a common resource, and you, know, you essentially turn every single node on the entire internet into yeah, a, a common shared computational resource, a common shared database, um, and a common shared uh, platform and code base, I guess, to build whatever you want on top of freely. So that's what I, that's what I really like. Um, and they, they used to, there actually is a video um, called Ethereum, the world computer, and that's what they were pushing. Um, but I'm not sure what it is now. It's kind of like the marketing department of Ethereum, I guess, yeah. or the, the angle and the general vibe of what people think Ethereum is is changing quite a bit. Yeah, and I, with Don Topscott, I, I felt this when I read Wikinomics for the first time. It really dawned on me that because he called out all the greater good of the commons of, of us people, just everybody joining together. And he talked about NASA, for example, running projects where they use the power of everybody's computer. And that, that was the first time I came across it. But then, you know, the world has evolved. I know it was 2008 since then, since uh, Satoshi's vision and everything has come to life and come to bear that this is actually a reality now and we're seeing the fruits of all that work. The space right now is really, really different. I think I've mentioned that in the, in the same blog post that you can even see it, see it actually physically manifest at the meetups we had. Um, so the first few meetups, you know, we had maybe 50 to 100 people and, you know, they, they were the crypto anarchists. They were the, the developers, the people who were like, you know, they got it. They were like, they saw the potential to change the world um, for, you know, for the social good, for a fundamentally different world um, with different power dynamics. Um, but then gradually over time, as the, particularly as the Ethereum price spiked, um, maybe six months ago, and definitely now that the Bitcoin price has spiked, you start seeing more suits turn up, more fintech, more speculators, more investors, more people essentially looking to make a quick buck. That's really, really changed the, the culture and really changed the scene, possibly for the worse, possibly for the better, because the beauty of what the whole crypto space is doing right now is that the money aspect of it, the, the profit aspect, is definitely bringing much more attention to it than, say, anything that happened in the open source movement you know, a decade ago. Um, this movement has definitely got way more attention. But is that attention good or is that bad? Like, if the kind of monetary units of tokenization and the profit motive is the core incentive of why people are coming into this, into this space, does that mean that sets up a future pathway towards... Uh, you know, the, the same type of uh, capitalistic motives and incentives that, you know, have caused the mess that we're in in our current economy. And you know, when you say that, like, so it always reminds me of a startup getting acquired by a bigger company. So the startup yeah. comes up with, uh, you know, it has great motives, it has great mission and values, and the team are very, very close. And then it's acquired by a big corporate, and all of a sudden, you get a reverse takeover, and the cor corporate culture leaks into the startup and actually ruins it. And it feels like that, doesn't it? It feels like the early adopters are getting kind of smothered by the the status quo in the established world. Yeah, definitely. And that really just comes down to the culture of who's using the technology, because the technology by its nature is fairly impartial. It's meant to be like a you know a, a default, impartial, neutral system which you can build anything on top of. And I think that's what the developers. I tend to find developers in the community, the hardcore developers who it's, it's their full-time job, in my, in my experience, they tend to not be too concerned about the deeper issues, I guess. They're more interested in just using a technology to do interesting things with it, like just to push it to the next level, 
Um, you know, for, like, a great example is say all, all these protocols that are being developed. Um, you know, a protocol by its nature should be neutral. Um, so you you know, it might be used for nefarious purposes. It might be used for good purposes. If you're the developer building it, you don't want to really give too much thought either way about it. You just want to build something neutral that anyone can use. Um, so a perfect example is something like you know IPFS or or Swarm, like any of these decentralized file storage platforms. Obviously, when you build when you build something like that, it's it's a it's a foundational system where you just want to build it. You just want to let people use it however they want to without asking permission. But then obviously that system could power a you know a future child porn ring that could never be shut down, or that system could power a future AWS where AWS doesn't have control over our data, or Facebook doesn't have control over our data. So the, it's the same type type of di- di- you know dichotomy of like <laughs> dystopian use case or you know uh, utopian use cases. It's like the force has been discovered and we can use for good or bad. <laughs> The, the good side of the force, the bad side of the force. So before we talk about the dystopian side, because you, you painted a really good picture of that. Uh, well, if you call it good. Before, before, <laughs> I try to be optimistic. <laughs> yeah, no, you were, you were, man. Um, if we talk about decentralization, because a lot of people struggle with what this means. You give examples, which is great, because a lot of people talk about decentralization as the removal of the middleman. But you go into examples from real estate agents to banks, etc. It'd be great if you covered a bit of that, Nathan. Yeah, I guess I guess that's what we really need to work out in this space is like, what what do we mean when we say these words and when we throw them around? Like, what are the actual core definitions and the and the common uh, cultural kind of zeitgeist of what they mean? So yeah, decentralization at the basic level it does mean yeah removing a middleman, but it also means essentially removing power structures. And so power is really something that isn't talked about too much in our society. And it's really what you know it's this kind of hidden this hidden force that controls everything. Um, so you think of any institution, whether it's government or business or you know wealth inequality, like anyone who has a centralized power, that's really a bad thing for the rest of us. You're giving all this control to a, a small group of individuals, and we obviously think that's bad. You know, right now there's like eight men control more than half the world's wealth. That's bad. So what blockchain technology is trying to do is is decentralize power structures of society, ideally, where every individual should have the exact same power as every other individual. And then that becomes a new platform on which to grow uh, a better society, a more equal society. Um, And really the way they do that is by essentially the core of the technology. So the core of the technology is really about open source. It's about uh, public uh, ledgers and open ledgers and really having a common code base and a common language with which to communicate. One aspect a lot of people focus on is the idea that there are all these data silos, and that's really how how a lot of the power structures in the world work right now, particularly with like our whole information age. So you look at someone like Facebook. You know, Facebook has all their data in their servers. They have like you know 15 different server farms in the world now. They control it, and then yet it's our data. Um, and so this is a really big thing in the decentralization space, where it's like, well, why can't we control our own data? have it all stored on a public blockchain, but allow us to control who has access to that and how it's used. And that way you don't have these systems where, where you know, Facebook controls all the world's data and is using that to, to mine it to then sell us uh, advertising back to us. And if you look at every single company in the world right now, every big company, at the core of it, a lot of it really boils down to the fact that they have um, ownership of of the data and ownership of private assets. Basically, private ownership is really one of the the key aspects as well of concentrating power. So you look at someone like Uber, like why is Uber sitting in the middle controlling all the data when we can have a blockchain system that allows us to 
interact with each other for a rider to book a driver without Uber in the middle? And why don't we have Facebook when we can have the same social, like an open social graph where anyone can use it? If we built a, a open social graph that allowed anyone to build on top of that, what you could do is have a system where instead of, say, you know, what happened with Instagram. So Instagram, they had to start up, they, they had to build their own, you know, centralized data silo, they had to build up their own community, they had to invest all this money and time and effort. And then as soon as they started gaining any traction, Facebook bought them. And so now all that data is within uh, Facebook's control and all that power just consolidates within Facebook further. Whereas if we had a system where there wasn't Facebook Inc., there was more like Facebook the protocol, where it was an open protocol and everyone's social data was stored on this protocol and every individual owned it, then you could have a system where if you started the new social network tomorrow, the new Snapchat, the new Instagram, the new whatever, you should be able to plug into that protocol without asking permission, without registering an API key with anyone. And then you should be able to plug into that and then have any user log in with their usual login and have instant access to all their data and all their friends. And anything they message on that new platform is instantly recognized and accessible to every other platform. So you could communicate on the new social 4.0 platform and you can send a message to your friend on Facebook and they get it and they can reply to you and you get it. That's the type of world we can build, this new platform where it's open by design. And that's really what decentralization is. It's really about dismantling the power structures. I mean, that was really what Bitcoin was about in the, in the very early days. It's like dismantling the, the power that central banks have over the control of issuance of money. It's really interesting when you talk about the Google, the Facebooks, the Ubers. I mean, these are the companies everybody is flocking to work for or queuing up to work for. They're the ones that have built a massive, massive wealth in a relatively short period of time, yet they are at the brink of a possible massive disruption. And I thought about this when I read your blog. I was like, well, it's not in the interest of governments and countries to let these guys fall over when decentralization comes in because all of a sudden there's going to be a massive loss of wealth, loss of jobs, loss of people who have built up massive stock options, etc., and there's going to be a, a collapse of, of sorts. That's a good point. So like too big to fail, but with the social media companies. Yeah. Like say Dublin, for example, you have all the headquarters, LinkedIn, Facebook, Google here. It, and, and while they aren't playing massive taxes in Ireland, they're creating ecosystems, which means houses, coffee shops, the disposable income of the people who are not necessarily Irish, who are working here, paying taxes, etc. When you take away all that, you're losing a massive amount and it'll be in their interest to make sure that these big companies don't fail. Yeah, definitely. It, it's a similar thing with the, I noticed with the housing markets where, you know, there's obvious things governments could do to stop this, this bubble from, you know, from growing bigger and just, and to actually, you know, increase housing affordability, but there's no interest, there's no incentive for them to do that because it's, you know, the economy looks great on paper if you've got a housing bubble and everyone's investing in, in houses that are going up in price. Um, so yeah, you, you could definitely have the same thing with the whole blockchain space um, as a as a protectionist type policy, like trying to prevent <laughs> these companies from from losing their value, because there there will definitely be like a transitionary stage where potentially these companies lose their value quite quickly, and then there's kind of like a trough until stuff is built back up again. Yeah. Um, but like, but actually, there's the other kind of aspect of where this could all go first, and I think this is the way it's going first anyway. Is that the traditional power brokers and, and the status quo and the big companies, they're going to jump on blockchain technology quite quickly and quite soon, but not for any of the, for the initial reasons of why it was developed. 
they obviously have no idea, no interest in decentralizing their power. What they're looking at blockchain technology for is to just just cut their costs because they can automate their entire backend. They'd particularly be looking at private blockchains. So there's a difference between public blockchains and private blockchains. You know, public is obviously something that's just run in in public, and anyone can access kind of without asking for for for, for, for permission. Um, and private blockchains are really internal blockchains that are run inside companies. And this is definitely what all the banks are doing now. So all of the banks have a consortium and they're all looking at using uh, a private blockchain to do essentially clearing in the back end behind, you know, between their banks when they when they clear their, their books and, and balance it all out. But that will be a private blockchain that only the banks will access. And so if you apply that same type of that same type of thinking, that same type of incentive to every other big company, what they're going to end up doing is is decentralizing their backends privately until the point where you get to the point where you know, these companies will be nothing more than a, a front end brand and the back end will be entirely automated and run on a blockchain. Yeah, it reminds me of Clayton Christensen. He talks about companies outsourcing to China or Asia. And what they found is first they outsourced the mainframe of a computer, for example. Then they got onto the the actual casing. Then it got onto the keyboard, and then all they were left doing was boxing them and distributing them. And then all of a sudden, they were disrupted by the company who was building out of Asia. And it's the same kind of thing, except you don't let the customer know what's going on behind the curtain. You're just kind of going, "Hey, this is my shiny <laughs> curtain. I'm trusted. You always trusted me." But behind the curtain, yeah. it's the exact same thing. It's like generic tablets versus yeah, yeah. a branded tablet, isn't it? It's the same thing. That's a perfect analogy, man behind the mirror <laughs> or behind the curtain. Yeah, we just have that would just be brands, and behind the scenes, there would be this automated AI private blockchain that just exists to make profits for their shareholders. The private blockchain can actually devalue open blockchain, and it's almost like it always reminds me of homeopathic medicine versus medicine. And you kind of <laughs> you make the other guys sound like quacks, and you kind of go, "Oh, you don't want to be going with that guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about." That's you know, that's a plant. You don't want to be taking a plant, yeah. do you? It's the same kind of thing, doesn't it? Even at the very basic level, even with, not even looking at Ethereum, just looking at uh, Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin's been around since 2009, and the initial intention was to replace central banks and for Bitcoin to become you know the world currency, and that's what we just use to buy and sell things. But obviously, they didn't realize that it would just become a speculative bubble that people were going to hold on to. <laughs> no one will want to spend it, and so Bitcoin's never going to become a daily use currency. It'll always just be a digital type of gold. Now, what will happen first, and it's definitely going to happen, like the first time the you know mainstream audience is going to use cryptocurrency is a central bank is going to issue a sovereign cryptocurrency for every single central bank in the world. And anytime you make a digital transaction using your Visa or MasterCard or you know sending digital money via an app or via your bank, behind the scenes, that will be crypto running on a private blockchain or possibly even a public blockchain. But the the user, the actual person, you know, sending the money, all they'll see is you know ten dollars in their own, you know, their own currency. So it'll be ten Australian dollars. Um, but behind the scenes, that'll be ten Australian crypto dollars, mm-hmm. and they won't care. They don't. They won't care. It's being issued by a central bank. They won't care that about any of this. These these uh, you know ideologies around decentralization, and that's really really scary because this is something that the whole crypto scene just really isn't catching onto the fact that like. We're, we're losing the battle. We're losing the initial, you know, the initial momentum and the initial ideology of what this whole movement is, because you know there's, there's no way a, 
any of these altcoins, there's no way Bitcoin, there's definitely no way any of these altcoins are going to reach a mass uh, use for the, you know, as a daily use transactional currency. There's no way that's going to happen before the central banks issue one, because the central banks are already looking at doing it within the next two, three years. I think Japan actually plans to issue their own uh, sovereign cryptocurrency before the Tokyo Olympics in 2020. So there you go. You're going to have in two years from now, every single Japanese citizen will probably be using cryptocurrency behind the scenes without even knowing it every time they make a digital transaction. Yeah, and that's scary. That means the power, the power struggle, the power systems, the power brokers. They it, the status quo remains the same, yeah. and and nobody will care. I know, man. It, it reminds me of say Elon Musk, right? So he's he's saying you know wind energy could power the world, but the problem is. All the power companies and all the uh, you know oil companies are going. Well, we're not letting that happen. So they all create a, a cozy cartel behind the scenes and all agree this is how we're going to manage this, and yeah. they, they basically shut it down. And the problem is in this world, in in the world of cryptocurrency or blockchain or Ethereum, there's not enough Elon Musk's, and we need more. Like even even to take AI. So you have Bill Gates, you have you have Richard Branson, you have Elon Musk saying. There's a problem brewing with AI in the future, but because everybody's rushing to get to AI to ensure that they don't topple over and don't fall behind their competitor, it's all being just swept aside. And these guys are being made, oh yeah, they're just super paranoid. And it feels like the same thing, man. It just feels like another opportunity is being missed because of the the status quo and vested interests. Yeah, and I don't know how you change that. It's... It's really hard. Like in the blog post, I, I did kind of make the point that I think it's going to go, you know, very dystopian, very authoritarian to begin with. But then, you know, the hope is, and it's definitely just a hope, it's a 50-50 shot. Um, the hope is after that, you know, if, if all these companies do decentralize their backends on private blockchains, then, you know, they've kind of almost stepped us in a direction towards, you know, making us have a, a fully decentralized society. Because, Essentially, they'll just be brands on the front end with private blockchains in the back end. So maybe at that point, then we'll start to realize, well, why don't we just replace those brands? Why instead of charging us five percent, why don't we just, you know, create a, a public version of that company or a public version of that entire industry and replace it with a one percent fee, just barely enough to run its costs but not make any profit? And that, that's where I really want to see it going. I really want to see it get to the point where. You could literally have an entire industry, not just you know a company, but an entire industry replaced by a blockchain DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, where it it runs exactly as you'd expect it to run. It provides all the value and all the services and everything you expect today, but it literally runs at zero profit. Like it, it, there'll still be a cost because there's still computational costs. There's still you know you still have to collect fees to actually pay for different services and things like that. But you could run these things at zero profit. And if you run it at zero profit, then that's where every corporate corporate kind of model today, every business model crashes because you know <laughs> companies run on profit. And if you have a company that's running on zero profit, then that kind of changes the game. It, it turns those companies into a new platform rather than an extractive kind of entity sitting there just to just to feed profits and money to their their shareholders. Yeah, and that's an interesting one because say for we had Dominic Frisbee on a, a few weeks ago talking about this and we're talking about what, why would it be a zero-profit organization? And he explained, for example, that, okay, with Bitcoin, for example, you were rewarded for mining. for mining. So obviously you got Bitcoin in exchange for mining first. But in a, in a DAO, how does that work in that, in that world? 
where it really comes back down to um, an individual wanting to do this again because yeah. there's there's no real economic incentive to want to drop it down to zero profit. Like the the economic incentive is to create a, a DAP, a smart contract DAO that you know you charge a, a fee where you're taking your cut as as profit. So it would actually have to take you know a very like an altruistic group of developers or an altruistic develop loan developer to actually want to say. Well, why why am I taking an excess here? Why can't I just copy your code, reduce the fee to just just enough to have it run and pay its costs, so it you know it doesn't it doesn't die off, and then just re-release it, and then that becomes a new protocol. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely requires an altruistic mindset, which doesn't really exist in the blockchain space right now because everyone's seeing you know a ton of money on the table and everyone wants to take their cut. And so that's kind of what's booming, you know, it's what's creating the ICO boom at the moment is everyone wants to get their piece. Um, maybe the hope is once some of these developers uh, and people in the space, you know, once they walk away with their tens of millions of dollars and you know, never have to work again, maybe, maybe yeah. they don't want any more than that. Maybe the greed, you know, subsides and it re- replaced with no more of the altruistic kind of end game visions yeah. and maybe then you'll have people who will be like okay well yeah let's just let's just try and create everything in society at zero profit so that we can run it more efficiently without anyone extracting it you know yeah. run society for the benefit of society rather than the benefit of a few yeah man and, and you know it reminds me of the early days of the web and, and the original visions of the web you know even going back to yeah. you know wikipedia you know the vision was everybody sharing and it is it's running on a commons mentality but yeah as you said there was no vision of how i'd make money first it was just yeah just do this this is a good cause this is a good way to run an encyclopedia that's you know crowdsourced the value is really in the the collective whole the values in the i guess if you called if wikipedia was built again today on the blockchain then you would you would kind of build it as as a protocol rather than you know, right now where Wikipedia is sitting on a server somewhere, um, yeah. and there's a few copies of it. Yeah. So, so man, you mentioned something earlier on, and I thought this was really interesting. So, you mentioned the Facebooks, the Googles, the social nets, and and the fact that they're they're using everybody's data, and that's the real value in their ad exchange, right? And so, I decide I'm going to give certain details about myself over. I'm not. I own my own details. I own my own data, but I'm going to give you some data. How does that work from a Facebook or a Google or one of the big social nets? Do they buy that from me or does that become some type of exchange? Do I get a token or a coin for that? Or what do you see happening in that world? Um, so I think that would be the idea where that, you know, rather than Facebook owning your data, you would own it and then you give permission to Facebook Inc. Or you give permission to some other social platform that wants to use that data. Um and then you would get to control how much of that data you give to them and you know whether you put a price on it. And yeah, basically brings all the control and power back to the individual um, and then allows that to emerge in a new direction from there. And that, it means it could definitely go in a direction where, you know, what if we just have a, a decentralized social graph protocol where everyone still just decides to give all the data to Facebook because they have enough money to pay everyone to, <laughs> to give the data to them. Yeah. Um, it, it could go that direction. Uh, it, actually, I think the direction it's kind of going now is, and it's it's another like really dangerous one that the blockchain space just seems to love right now is um the attention economy. And holy shit, is the attention economy a, a, one of those things where it can go in such a dark direction? Um, so the attention economy is really built built around the idea of you know every 
traditional economics requires a scarcity factor and you know the current economy you know we have the scarcity factor of resources on a finite planet and that that's what is the basis of value but in a in a digital era in an information era where information is is essentially free and abundant and and limitless then you can't really put value on information anymore so people are now starting to think and, and this idea has been around for decades people are starting to think well, the only limiting factor then is human attention. You only have 24 hours in the day to give attention to something. So why don't we build an economy built around that that as a scarcity factor and create value around what attention people give to things? And that makes so much sense from an economic point of view because it just it, it's obvious. I mean, we already do that. It's you know, if if we spend you know two hours on Facebook, that's two hours we could have spent somewhere else. But Facebook benefits from that because they can run ads to us. And they get all our data and all our attention during that that two hour slot during the day. Um, but now you've got people who are you know the whole tokenize everything, which has its good sides and bad sides. So now you've got things like basic attention token, and you've got all these other uh, platforms that are kind of like turning. You know, there's one in Sydney that's trying to do uh, labor hour tokens, like tokenize people's <laughs> hourly work, which is kind of what we do in the wage economy now. Um, but so basic attention to me, but basic basic attention token. What they want to do is allow um, allow you to earn money for giving attention to certain pieces of content and and particularly advertising. So advertisers will basically be able to buy your eyeballs by the minute, or even by the second in the future. And in, in one sense, you can argue that yeah, that's great because right now you know uh, Facebook is is getting all this money off of our data and our attention, and we're not getting anything back from that. So wouldn't it be great if if the advertisers paid us directly for our attention. But then the flip side of that is, well, now you've turned human attention into a commodity and you can literally buy eyeballs by the second. And so humans just become another thing to, to manipulate and you know, uh, access and, and change behavioral, behavioral ideas and, and spread memes much more quickly. And whoever has the most money can spread the most memes. And so it's dangerous in that sense because you can get to this point of like the ultimate propaganda machine where you could just you could just buy access to the influencers and manipulate them in a very precise way, which is already what happens with the current you know fake news and social media and advertising and everything. It's already what people do, but this is just taking it to the next level where it's tokenized and made much more efficient. So that's scary. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think we had Neri Yal on before and Martin Grunberg talking about habits and how technology has habit habit forming technology built into it so it's actually designed to bring you back time and time again this is just a case of giving you some type of payment for that so yeah they're doing it to you already and they keep bringing it back and they're you know you get a dopamine release every time you get a little notification on and then you click on it and this is a case of okay well now we're going to pay you for that to add another incentive to to keep you on our platform longer and longer yeah, <laughs> it's mad, man. It's it's dangerous, and and then, you know, to add another layer to it, you think of you kind of touched on this, you know, in a world of artificial intelligence where you know AI is doing a lot of jobs and a lot of people are unemployed, and a UBI universal basic income comes out, you know, this is how people will earn their money. They'll give attention to things and they'll earn money. It might be disposable income. Yeah, and I, uh, <laughs> this is another area where like you know. Uh, I love the idea of a basic, basic income, but I don't like the idea that it, if it's issued by a, a central government, because I mean, what's going to happen is that you know, you'll still have the same situation where you know 0.01% of the population control the 
the means of production, the factories, the AI, the assets, the algorithms, the data. Um, and then 99.9% of us are living off a basic income that's issued by a, a government. And <laughs> all that needs to happen is for the, gov- for the government to control that 99% is raise or lower the basic income. You know? Yeah. If you want people to be favorable of you, just raise the basic income. If you want to punish them, lower it. Um, and then on top of that, if basic income doesn't solve things like wealth inequality, it doesn't solve you know the power struggles in society, um, and all it does is really just perpetuate capitalism. It just gives people money to keep spending, which you know is is not is not the direction I don't think, I think we want to go. Um, so so on that note, that's that's so my main project that I'm, I'm working on. Uh, off and on is uh, Peerism, uh, so P-E-E-R-I-S-M. Tell us a little bit more about Peerism. What's the model and what what does it aim to do? Really, the aim is to ease wealth inequality because wealth inequality right now is just really terrible. Like the eight men control more than half the world's wealth, which is another consolidation of power, um, and also just job automation. I really hate jobs. I think jobs are really kind of demoralizing and they really limit human capacity i think if we if everyone was a freelancer and everyone had the freedom to just pursue their own you know interests and passions without any monetary incentive that would be so much better for humanity as a whole but on that note we're we're heading towards this scenario quite quickly where i think job automation from ai and algorithms and and just automation in general is going to be much more intense than i think a lot of people expect um and you're, you're starting to see the the signs of it now i mean uh, you look at like what's happening in in the U.S. with the opioid epidemic, and a lot of people have basically linked that directly to the fact that those people in Middle America have lost their manufacturing jobs, um, and so they've lost their income, they've lost their purpose, and you know everything else falls apart from there on. Um, I think that's coming for every sector. I think that's coming for the professional services sector, for every white collar job, um, for creative jobs as well, um, because you're going to have AIs inevitably going to do everything better than humans can. It's just a matter of time, um, and I think that time is definitely going to be within our lifetimes. So we have to start preparing for it. So anyway, so purism is really about solving that. And but I don't want to do this, you know, hippie, wishy washy. Like let's just create a new economy where we hold hands. Like I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, aware of the current reality that we live in. So purism is really about transitioning us slowly towards that, towards something more collective and more equal in some sense. So what, what I actually want to do is a thing called skill tokens. So the beauty of tokenization is that tokens don't have to just have a, a monetary value. They can actually represent any type of value or any type of you know, thing you want to imbue those tokens with. So I want to do a, th- a system where we can try and quantify everyone's skill sets um, by using skill tokens. So what you could do is have a, a decentralized open marketplace, global marketplace for tasks and work and education and allow people to earn tokens in the particular skill or interest that they're interested in. So a good example would be, you know, um, a basic example like logos. Like say say you really love making logos, and it's a really probably crappy example, but imagine there's a there's a logo token, and the logo token has a floating value. Maybe each logo token is worth a dollar. So you really want to become the best in the world at, at making logos. And so you go and do task for other people on this platform and you earn logo tokens. So if I pay you $100 US to do a logo, that same $100 is worth 100 logo tokens. And if you do a successful job, then that adds to your skill level. And so then if you go do another $100 logo task, now your skill level is up to 200. And so it's almost like gamifying work in, in such a way that 
helps quantify people's skill sets, but not only skill sets, interests as well, interests, passions. So you could have thousands of these. You could have a whole, almost like a resume or a CV of like thousands of different tokens that you've earned for doing tasks for each other. If we can quantify people's skill sets, we can then start to have an economy that is aware of people's passions and interests much more than the current system now, where right now, if you, if you go to a party and you ask, so what do you do for a living? And some guy says, oh, I'm an accountant. Your immediate assumption is, okay, that guy works at one company, sits at one desk for 40 plus hours per week. That's it. And the problem is accounting is definitely going to be automated at some point. It should already be automated. It's just moving numbers around. So when his entire industry is automated, what does he have to fall back on? He has to what, go back to university or college, do another three, four-year degree to become a lawyer, and then lawyers get automated. We set ourselves in these very homogenous roles where we do one thing, which makes us very susceptible to automation. But if we had a system where the economy was aware of our diversity of skill sets, then we could just fall back on them. So that accountant, he's not just good at accounting. He's not a one-track-minded person. He's good at maybe photography or marketing or some obscure random skill that we don't even know about. So if he had quantified those skill sets, if accounting was automated, he could just fall back on any of the other hundreds of skills he's got. I love it, man. Yeah, and I love what you said there about releasing people from the grind. In college, I did a dissertation on Emile Zola's Asamoah, and the story is about basically a bar. The word Asamoah means to bludgeon, and it's about this bar <laughs> basically where people just go and get destroyed on eau de vie, which is the basically like putching or really, really hard alcohol every evening to bludgeon themselves from their reality. And people still do it every single day. People people get home sure. after a miserable day in work and they, they neck a bottle of wine or whatever is their fancy, just miserable in their jobs. And they do it because they're trapped in golden handcuffs. And it, it, like I love what you've done here because the entire other part of the interview is all part of the same thing. This is all part of the same thing. And you've seen a solution to go, okay, well, what if I can create like almost like a review, people getting reviewed, but on their actual passion, not on their job. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I love it, man. And you're liberating people towards what they really want to do where, and you're giving them almost a platform where they can be found for what they want to do. Once you've quantified people's skill sets, then you can start to build a, you know, a self-aware economy that can match tasks directly to people without having to do this thing where you've got to, you know, go and get quotes and, you know, talk to seven different companies with their own, their own brand, their own accounting department, their own like marketing department, their own sales team, just to get one thing done. Instead, you could have, you just announce to the economy that you need something and the economy routes your, your request to the right person. Yeah. And you get all the bloated middleman crap, all the all the salespeople, all the marketing teams, all the accounting teams, like you literally get directly to the the person you need. I used to work for a, a small web design firm and it was, it was really interesting. So they basically just did websites. They called themselves a digital agency. So they had the usual thing, like everything you expect. They had a brand, you know, had an office, had staff, had, you know, all the other stuff, but they had 20 people working for them. Out of those 20 people, there was only two graphic designers and two devs those were the guys and girls who actually did the damn work, who actually made the websites. The rest of the team were managers, sales staff, and kind of reception accounting type people. So one fifth of the actual staff did the work that actually needed to be done. And the rest were just kind of like this kind of support system around keeping that entity running, I guess. And on top of that, like say you need a website done, you, you know, and you do it in the traditional sense of not online, you you know, you go around from firm to firm to firm and get quotes and you talk to them. It's such a slow, laborious process. 
And then even if you sign up to one, you know, only four four guys out of the 20 actually do the work. It'd be so much more efficient and you'd change the economy up so rapidly if you could just have a system where you announce you need a website done or anything done on any platform and then immediately every platform plugged into this protocol immediately gets that task request and can start matching it directly to the right person without any of this like proposal bidding crap which just results in a you know the workers getting screwed over because you know the employer wants the lowest cost and so it bids to the bottom and you know you're left with someone in India who's willing to do it for five bucks an hour instead this system can match uh, the higher you're willing to pay uh, it can match you to the higher skilled person and so it almost creates this incentive around ideally creates this incentive around if you're willing to pay more for a task to be done then we're willing to match the economy is willing to match you to someone with the better skills to get that task done i hear you and, and you know when you talk there as well about the waste in the system and you mentioned just one side in the web development team you have a pm you have an account manager yeah. you, have, you know <laughs> admin staff but you think about the other side and you talk about requests for a proposal there rfps so many of them are done by government bodies and the government body is even 10 times worse there's been 50 meetings over which web developer what should the website look like really slow feedback loop because obviously time moves at a totally different pace in somewhere like that and there's unbelievable waste and what's even worse is they're getting paid by the government so everybody's tax is feeding this beast so again <laughs> again we're back to this problem of vested interest which is always going to be the huge challenge to overcome i love the idea of peerism where can people find out more and can they get involved at all nathan so I'm still trying to work out how to get this thing funded. At the moment, it's one of those blockchain projects where it's more uh, altruistic than, than you know, profit-based. So it's going to be hard to do an ICO around it. But yeah, purism.org, and I'm, I'm running it as a, a big kind of decentralized open system where anyone can contribute to it. But we're, we're, yeah, we're looking at how to take the next step, maybe boil it down into more of a, you know, let's just focus on skill tokens, maybe do an ICO around skill tokens to get that to the next level. Um, but yeah, anyone who wants to join in and help out, uh, we've got a Discord channel and purism.org. And yeah, just jump on and, and read about it. There's a whole bunch of blog posts on there uh, talking about why skill tokens, I think, are a necessary you know, system for the, the next economy and really all the thoughts and ideas around why we need these particular aspects within the protocol. Um, this is another thing in the blockchain space that a lot of people aren't giving too much attention to is that it really terrifies me with trying to like come up with the the perfect system because when you make these decentralized protocols they kind of they take on a life of their own once you've made them and you have the potential of creating something with really good intentions but if you don't think about all the possible emergent complexities of how that could be used in the wild your good intention protocol could actually end up becoming a really terrible enslaving system that like can never be shut down which is kind of what the whole blockchain is about. You, know, you can create these DAFs, these DAOs that literally cannot be shut down by any entity, government, business, or otherwise. And I think we really need to start thinking about what type of protocols we want to design and really start trying to, trying to collectively decide where we want these things to emerge. We almost need to work backwards. We need to work backwards from a, a future point, like a social decentralist point of view in the future of an amazing society that works for everyone, and then work backwards to the present to work out how we can have these systems designed in such a way where we, we avoid as much bias in the initial protocol as possible, but we have enough bias embedded in it so that it devolves into hopefully a positive direction and not a dystopian nightmare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the same can be said for AI, man. I mean, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. 
I mean, we're going to end up with a, a new version of an atom bomb if people aren't thinking the way you're thinking about, okay, let's let's set the, the finish line here and the protocols here. So it reminds me of Asimov's law laws of robots, you know, ro- you, you know, no robot shall kill a human, etc. And you're kind of doing the same thing, but from a DAO perspective. Yeah, we, we can't really pursue technology blindly anymore because we, we know that it's a double-edged sword. So we, we can't do this thing anymore where we just say, yeah, let's just build it for the fun of it. Like, it's getting more serious than that. And we're, we're literally becoming, you know, we're monkeys that are becoming gods. And yeah, we don't have the the uh, ability to understand all the complexity and all the, the emergent phenomena of what we're creating. And so we need to, yeah, I think work work backwards and, and work backwards collectively. Like, this is this is the reason why I launched Peerism as as a thing where as a system of you know a decentralized organization in a sense, and I'm trying to get as many people and as many minds in into the into the mix as possible because I don't want to be <laughs> I don't want to be responsible for trying to think of everything of how to you know how to change the system, and I don't think at the same time I can't like I I recognize that you know as individual humans we're not very intelligent, and even collectively we can you know we're not incredibly intelligent you know but we're better collective than we are individual and if we if we pursue these things individually and we pursue these things in co- in competition rather than cooperation we're going to we're going to create these these really bad futures that we don't want so we need to think about this in a different way brilliant man and, and one last question for you is so i always ask this question of of future thinkers like yourself is kids today right you so you mentioned you know the system so, so many systems are broken one of the systems I, I think is massively broken is how we educate our children. And I know there's signals popping up amid all the noise out there that you know people are starting to educate their kids differently, and understanding that it's not about focus. You know, unfocus is as important as focus. And how do we teach kids to think different? How do we teach people, not only children, but how to critically think, think about like you did in your blog, think about both sides of the story. You know, even thinking about the double-edged swords, what side, what will happen if it goes this way, what will happen if it goes that way. What do you think people should be studying these days and what should they be avoiding doing? Yeah, so education is also another core part of the whole purism idea. Definitely we need to be teaching kids how to think critically and just how to learn. That's really the most important thing. Everything else is just really superfluous, like everything else will will flow from there. Just things like, yeah, critical thinking, uh, the, the scientific methods and how to learn and, and particularly how to use technology. It doesn't necessarily mean like teach them how to code. Like coding is important today, but it's not going to be important in the future because eventually we'll get to the point where you'll be able to have a conversation with an AI program that does all the coding for you and you just kind of have a back and forth conversation to create whatever you want. Um, and that'll be amazing. On the education aspect, so one of the things behind the whole idea of using skill tokens um, is that we definitely have to have a peer-to-peer education system because technology is moving at such an exponential pace that there's absolutely no way that we can create a top-down curriculum. So obviously, university degrees, they're already 10 years out of date, and, and people know this. By the time you finish a three-, four-year university degree, half of what you learned is already already made made redundant because technology is doubling, you know, the pace is doubling every year. So it's exponential in nature. So even with things like MOOCs, like online education platforms like Coursera and you know Khan Academy and stuff like that, I actually even think that those platforms are inadequate because um, at the end of the day you're having to you're having to create a curriculum around a new idea, which means that 
for that to have happened, time has to have passed where there's been demand and someone's actually learned that particular skill enough to the to get to the point where they can design and create and sit down and write up a curriculum to then teach it back to people. And in that time, you know, that 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 skill could already be made redundant. We could have already moved on. Even if that process happens in the in the course of a week or a, or a month, that skill could have moved on. So one thing I love is the idea of um if if we can just allow people to just pursue what like pursue any passion, any interest they have, regardless of any economic incentive. You know, I hate this idea that people choose their university degrees, their college degrees, because they're, you know, they're picking the degree that is likely to get them the job in the future. That's like the most terrible way to go about finding, working out what you want to do with your life. If we had a system where people just pursued what they wanted to do in any regard, um, what they were interested in, what they were passionate about, and then learn from each other in a peer-to-peer fashion with no formal education, with no formal education system, no formal curriculum, then we can be much more resilient and move much faster. So you could have a system where, um, like I used to give this example of like, you know, fidget spinners, those that craze that kind of popped up about a year ago or something, it's kind of died off now. Um, if you had a system like with Perism skill tokens, so you could have a fidget spinner token and paired to that token is a community, a bit like a imagine subreddits with tokens. So there'd be like a, a fidget spinner subreddit, but it's decentralized. So it's you know the data can be used on any platform. Um, and you could jump into that that subreddit. You could learn from each other about you know fidget spinning and the best practices to fidget spinning, and and share cool tricks and you know share how to three D print awesome fidget spinners and all this other stuff. And then by doing that, you actually quantify their interests, but then quantify their skills. And then you actually create this little microeconomy around fidget spinning. And, you know, very quickly, you could get to a point where the market cap of the fidget spinner token is, you know, a couple hundred million dollars. And now you've, you've quantified and ranked everyone's skills and interests within that community. And those people can then start getting jobs fed to them. So you could actually, within the space of a week or two, you could go from, you know, just being curious about this brand new skill, this brand new this trend that's popped up to being quantifiably, quantifiably skilled and, and good at that, that particular thing and then actually getting paid to teach people how to, you know, build fidget spinners to, you know, do different tricks, to do all this awesome stuff. And so apply that to every other possible combination of any, any skill, any interest, anything that possibly pops up in the future and you that's the future of education. That is a much more resilient, much more dynamic and, and emergent, complex education system than having this top-down model where we you know, create little tests and we create little curriculums from a top-down perspective. That's a lovely way to finish it and a lovely vision. So people can find out more and you're on Twitter at Peerism, P-E-E-R-I-S-M. And Nathan Waters, founder of Peerism and Sydney Ethereum. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, man.